Hey guys, and welcome to the HSC Biology Podcast. My name is Mr. Colella, and I'm going to be running you through the core concepts in the HSC Biology Syllabus. So, stay tuned and enjoy. Biology. 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 Hello and welcome to episode two of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our journey through module five, heredity, and uh, the inquiry question we were looking at last week was how does reproduction ensure the continuity of a species? And the key points for today are going to continue answering that question. And so up first, we have the analysis of the features of fertilization, implantation, and hormonal control of pregnancy and birth in mammals. We'll then go through the impact of science or evaluating the impact of scientific knowledge on the manipulation of plant and animal reproduction in agriculture. And that will get us through today's content. Now, before we begin, it is important to remember that I'm going through most of the content in the syllabus, but a lot of the Things that you'll be tested on are these skills. And so these particular dot points, I think, are going to be heavily weighted towards skills. So I'll do my best to give you an overview of the important content points. But I can foresee this being more of a uh, stimulus in an exam where you're given a table or a flowchart or just some information in general and you're asked to work it out based on your knowledge um, and also the information you're given. All right, well, let's get into it. So first of all, it's probably good to have an understanding of the male and female reproductive parts and their approximate locations within the body. Not something I can see them testing you on specifically. Again, you're probably going to be provided with some sort of stimulus in order to answer questions. Um, so we're going to go straight into the... Um, fertilization content here which it can all start with the production of the gametes and in males the gamete we are looking at today is the sperm and sperm undergo a process or to turn into sperm they undergo a process called spermatogenesis and that is going from a diploid uh, spermatogonia cell which is like an early diploid cell that contains all the information um, it undergoes the meiosis process that we're going to learn about later. So crossing over independent assortment, random segregation. And we're going to get down to four unique gametes or four unique haploid cells. Keeping in mind that haploid means half, half the information or half the chromosomes. And diploid is uh, a full set of chromosomes, uh, one from mum, one from dad for each chromosome. So die or two of each. All right, so the production of sperm is a relatively complex flowchart of things that occur, but the things that I'll mention in uh, this podcast will be the key hormones because that is mentioned in the dot point and the main processes involved. So if we start at the beginning, the brain is going to be in control of doing most things and it's no different here. You're going to use the hypothalamus in your brain to produce a chemical called GnRH. Um, now, this is gonadotropin-releasing hormone. I don't know how much that's going to be tested in the exam. Again, I think most of these will be given to you. Now, the next two things I think are going to be important to know, um, and that is the stimulation of the anterior pituitary to produce LH and FSH. Now, LH stands for luteinizing hormone, and FSH stands for follicle-stimulating hormone. Both of these are involved in both the male and the female uh, gamete productions. So it is important to remember these and their function. 
In males, it's different to females. Um, the LH is the stimulator of the uh, testosterone in males, and this occurs in Leydig cells. But if you just remember that LH, it's like a chemical cascade, LH starts to make testosterone, that's going to be really important. Now with uh, FSH, FSH is involved with production of a protein in a different cell. Um, and both those two things together, so the testosterone combined with the protein, basically need to be at a level where they're high enough to promote the production of sperm. So once again, it's a chemical cascade where you have LH and FSH acting on testosterone and these proteins respectively. Both of them together will allow you to produce sperm. And once those levels drop, then uh, you will no longer be making sperm. And that can be regulated by another hormone called inhibin. And inhibin can basically slow down the production of FSH um, and that will stop the process if needed. So that is basically the process of spermatogenesis. But the most important points to remember, I think, are the fact that LH and FSH are released. You need testosterone. Preposterous amounts of testosterone. Preposterone. And these proteins um, in the Sertoli cells, but just mainly remember a protein. And if those levels are high enough, the sperm will begin to be made and that produ production of uh, or process of meiosis will occur. Now in females, you have two main processes that are occurring. And that is the ovarian cycle and the menstrual cycle. And they can be broken up again into many different points. This is slightly more complex as two things are happening at once. And it's all about the preparation of the body to receive um, or to grow a potential baby. And so everything has to be set up for that occurrence if it happens. Now with the female ovarian cycle, it's very similar in the way it starts to the male production of sperm. So the idea is that we want to make a viable egg, okay? And I might refer to it throughout as an oocyte. That's O-O-C-Y-T-E. So just keep that in mind as I'm speaking about each part. Now, as I said before, it's similar to the male production of sperm. The hypothalamus, once again, releases GnRH, um, and this stimulates the anterior pituitary to produce LH and FSH. And so we're back at the luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. Um, and so both of these have the role of developing this oocyte. Um, and it does this um, as the oocyte is wrapped in something that we call a follicle. And the follicle kind of grows with the egg and allows it to continue to develop until it's ready to be released. Now, if you think about it logically, it just enlarges in size as the LH and FSH is acting on this follicle. And as the follicle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it gets to a point when it is ready. And then the body will increase dramatically the amount of luteinizing hormone. Now, for me, this is one of the more important points that you need to remember. Um, it's like a kick of LH. So a really large amount of LH is released and also an increase in the FSH as well. And also estrogen increases as well. But it's mainly that immediate kick of LH. It will cause that tiny egg, the oocyte, to be released from the follicle. So it will, it will separate from the follicle where it had been sitting and it will make its way down the uh, fallopian tubes, hopefully to meet up with the sperm um, and then eventually down into the uterus. Now, the remaining follicle, that, that thing that supported the egg, 
is then going to turn into something we call a corpus luteum. And I have seen quite a few questions around this. Now, the corpus luteum is, as I said before, the remaining bit of the follicle, but it has a really important job. It actually produces hormones, and the hormone that it produces is progesterone and also a little bit of estrogen. But the production of progesterone is really important as it links in to the menstrual cycle that we're going to talk about next. So it helps prepare the uterus to receive the viable uh, zygote, hopefully. That's the combination of the sperm and egg. And so it needs to prepare the uterus. Now, the uterus itself in preparation will thicken its lining. And that is the endometrium that is going to get thicker, the endometrium layer. And what happens is there is more blood vessels going to that layer. The more blood vessels there are, the more nutrients there can be provided to the zygote when implanted. Now, if there is no zygote that has been implanted, what will occur is the menstrual cycle or one part of it, which is menses, where the uh, layer of endometrium that has been built up will be removed. Uh, So that is also important to remember. So the menstrual cycle has four main phases. Menses, as I spoke about before, the shedding of the endometrium. Pre-ovulation, where that endometrium is building up. Ovulation, the release of the oocyte, which occurs during the menstrual cycle. That's around day 14. And then we have the luteal phase. So at the end, when the um, zygote has either been implanted or not, the corpus luteum will do different roles. And so if there is no implantation, the zygote has not been formed, there is going to be no baby, the corpus luteum will slowly start to break down and it will slowly stop releasing progesterone and estrogen. This will cause menses once again and the process will repeat. Now, if fertilization does occur, there is going to be a difference to how the corpus luteum responds. But before that, let's go through the actual process of fertilization So the sperm have to make it through a number of obstacles in order to fertilize the egg. And the sperm relative to the egg are very small as well. Um, So the basic process is they have to get from the vagina through the cervix, through the uterus and into the fallopian tubes. And once they're in there, they're up against changes in pH, mucus, white blood cells um, and a process called rheotaxis. So this is where the fluid in the uh, female reproductive parts is flowing in the opposite direction to the direction the sperm is heading. And they are trying to move through that fluid in order to get to where the egg is. So it kind of orients them for the direction they want to go. Now, more recently, the research has come out on uh, sperm and how they swim. It used to uh, be believed that they kind of move their tails forward and backwards, almost like a fish or a tadpole, Um, but more recently the evidence has been that they actually spin around or rotate um, um, around and around. So uh, that's how they're making their way through that fluid. Now while they're moving through that fluid, their heads are actually going to break down. They have an acrosome, and an acrosome is the part of their head, as I said, that that gets revealed as it gets broken down to hopefully... uh, be completely broken down once it gets to the female egg. Now, in that acrosome is going to be some very important things. 
The first part of the female egg is made up of these large granulosa cells and the sperm have to kind of push through them. Next, they have to get through um, a second layer. And to get through the second layer, they actually have to release enzymes that are in their head. So this is why they're, uh, the breaking down of that um, the head, the acrosome, is really important. They have to release enzymes to get through that second layer. Release the hound. Now, once they've got through that second layer, they have binding receptors to get through uh, receptors on the female egg. And once they have bound those receptors, the egg will basically shut down. All the cells around the outside will go hard. No other sperm will be able to connect. The sperm will then release the DNA into the egg to hopefully successfully combine with the female DNA and undergo the next phase of mitosis, um, which will hopefully end in a successful zygote. So that is the process of fertilization and the main points are that sperm have to make their way through many obstacles. They have a head that has enzymes in it. It gets revealed or broken down as they get to the egg. They have to get through a few layers in the egg and bind with receptors and release their DNA. That way the cell can then start to undergo mitosis. All right, so once that zygote has been created, it then needs to make its way down to that endometrium. And so we spoke about this before as the preparation phase. If the zygote is successfully made and implanted, we are then going to see a number of different processes occur. So just keep in mind, as I've been speaking about this stuff, I've simplified a couple things. The zygote itself, um, once formed, does start to undergo mitosis immediately. And as it's dividing into four cells and then eight and so on, by the time it's actually made its way down into the uterus, it is no longer called a zygote anymore. It's now known as a blastocyst. It just has more cells and it has enough of them that it's going to start successfully uh, growing into that baby. And so implantation can occur when we have that blastocyst. Now, with implantation, if it does occur, I said before, there is a number of different processes that occur, and it starts with that corpus luteum again. So once it has landed in that uterine wall and it is successfully implanted, it will then, well, the brain will then tell the corpus luteum to not go away. If you remember before I said it, it degrades over time. Well, we don't want that. We want the continued release of progesterone. We want to maintain that endometrium. We don't want it to undergo menses. And so we want that corpus luteum to continue to secrete progesterone and estrogen. This way, the uh, successfully implanted uh, blastocyst will have enough nutrients to grow and continue to divide. Now... Once this occurs, the next important phase is the development of the placenta. Now, the corpus luteum cannot continue to maintain the growth of the uh, early embryo. And so what's going to happen is the placenta, this is the only known organ that grows during the life cycle of a human and then is removed at the end, will start to take over the role. So a placenta is a tiny sac that grows alongside the baby that contains all of the hormones and the nutrients that the baby needs to grow, including progesterone and estrogen. Now towards the end, as the embryo continues to develop and starts to form a baby, the 
End phase will involve a few hormones in a positive feedback loop. Now, a positive feedback loop is where one thing tells the next thing to continue making more, which continues making more and so on. And the idea is that you want to make more and more and more in order to undergo a process. And so we have two new chemicals introduced here or new hormones, and that is oxytocin and prostaglandin. And these two hormones are involved in telling the uterus wall to start to contract. So oxytocin starts this process off, which stimulates the production of prostaglandin, and both of them together cause contractions. And those contractions are really important when the baby is ready. Finally, before the baby comes out, the mother will also have to prepare to feed and um, provide nutrition to the offspring. And so another chemical or hormone called prolactin is released. Prolactin, you can think about lactate. It is made uh, to stimulate the production of milk in the breasts. And that way the baby will have the correct nutrition once born. Now, this process is complex. And as I said before, in most uh, uh, diagrams or questions, you're given a stimulus. And it's almost always a flowchart where you're asked to analyze certain aspects of this process. Knowing it will help. So knowing these different words will help. Knowing how they affect different things. So the fact that progesterone and estrogen are important to grow the baby, the oxytocin and prostaglandin are important to engage in those contractions of the muscles and prolactin is important for the stimulation of milk but the diagram you get may be so complex that anything i'm saying doesn't seem to make sense so do your best to memorize the hormones and their roles the process itself try and look at a few diagrams and see if you can develop your own mental picture of how this process occurs and that is, guys, the process of fertilization, implantation, and pregnancy. So with that, it says in mammals, and mammals can be any mammal, not just a human. So for me, I can see this question being given as one of the other mammals, and you're asked to analyze it. Don't freak out. The process is going to be very similar, but you're going to have to apply logic and the hormones may have different roles. So you have to accept that. The questions aren't just going to be based straight off content. All right. Let's move on to the final key point for today, and that is evaluate the impact of scientific knowledge on the manipulation of plant and animal reproduction in agriculture. So with this dot point, once again, we, we link back to that core inquiry question. How does reproduction ensure the continuity of a species? And we just spoke a lot about the actual process of reproduction and everything that goes into it. So all of those things I just spoke about are obviously important in creating a, a species that is successful. And so uh, that all links back to that inquiry question. Now this one here, the scientific knowledge is what did we learn or what have we learned that has allowed us to understand reproduction in agriculture? And there's many ways that you can answer this question. So scientific knowledge could come from many areas. And for instance, we could look at, say, 
um, Watson and Crick, who uh, discovered the secret of life DNA. Um, um, but if we if we look at the the evidence they got, which was from Franklin, um, that's something we'll go into a bit later. Uh, we could look at Gregor Mendel, who spoke about dominance and recessive uh, traits, which are important in understanding how things are inherited. So I'm going to pick three things that you may have done before and cross over with many topics in this syllabus. Uh, artificial pollination, artificial insemination, and cloning or IVF. So our understanding of plants and the fact that they can reproduce sexually allows us to artificially pollinate to create favorable traits. So we are able to take the pollen from one plant, place it on the uh, stigma of another plant in order pr to produce a seed that has traits of the plant that we prefer or that we like. And this is really good for farming um, to create uh, a cheaper and more uh, effective plant that, that creates the thing that we need. Um, it's better for society in, in terms of providing food for those who may not be able to get it. Um, but we are also decreasing genetic diversity when we do this. So um, that's the first one. The second one, artificial insemination, a similar process but in animals where the sperm is taken and artificially uh, inserted into the female and hopefully successfully uh, the sperm and the egg meet and the process that we just spoke about of fertilization implantation uh, can occur. Uh, and artificial insemination, we can get favorable traits once again. Uh, a good example is the Belgian blue cow, which has a double muscle gene. It makes it enormous. It's not abnormal. It was a mutation already, and they just continued growing these cows um, using artificial insemination, and now they are enormous. And finally, cloning and IVF. Now, with cloning, the idea is that you create a genetically identical offspring, which could be very beneficial if you want a very unique type of cow or type of horse or whatever it is that you're trying to make because they may have genes that are perfect for what you need. And so it would be great if you could create a genetically identical copy. However, it's a pretty expensive process. It's not always successful. And there are ethical issues around whether or not it's correct or right to do these things. With IVF, a little different again. It happens outside the body, so in vitro um, or outside the individual in a petri dish. Basically, the combination or the fertilization of that egg occurs and it is then reinserted into the organism. We go through cloning in a bit more detail later in the syllabus. So don't worry too much if uh, you're wondering about the processes of cloning. So going back through the key point, the impact of scientific knowledge, so our understanding of haploid cells, of fertilization, of gametes, of the ways in which different animals produce sexually and asexually, our understanding of binary fission and mitosis, all of these things have led us to be able to better or more successfully use reproduction in agriculture to benefit society. So that's the overall idea of this, this point here. How has the scientific knowledge we've developed allowed us to better develop or manipulate plant and animal uh, reproduction in agriculture? So I hope that was good, guys. I hope you um, understand those concepts a bit better and we are going to continue moving through the syllabus in the next episode. So I hope you enjoyed that and I'll see you later.